First uh, Peter uh, chapter 1. Uh, let's pray again and we'll jump in at verse 22. Father, we thank you for uh, the, the work that your word does in our hearts, in our minds, our lives, uh, in eternity, Lord, the way that it has touched us. Please minister to us uh, this evening as we examine your word. We long to know what it is that you are saying, what you are doing in our hearts and minds, Lord. We want to see uh, your kingdom come and your will be done, your uh, desire accomplished in us and through us. Use this time together to uh, mold us and fashion us and shape us into the image of your Son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, um, really, uh, you know, you have to back up into all of uh, Peter's explanation uh, about uh, the work of the Lord and the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the, you know, the, the Lamb that was uh, foreordained uh, before the foundations of the world to be the sacrifice and you know his being resurrected from the dead, you know, giving us uh, the faith and the hope uh, that are in God. Verse 22, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Now, before I move on, uh, you know, uh, there's a book, um, if you're not familiar with it, uh, that's called, and it's, I think it's still in print. I know it's still available. It's called A Vision That Changed a Nation. And uh, it is the life story uh, not an autobiography, but a biography, well-researched, uh, that of William Tennant. And William Tennant was the minister here in America that trained the pastors that we're all so familiar with that resulted in the Great Awakening here in America, that resulted in the uh, men such as George Washington uh, rising up and delivering us from the tyranny of England. So William Tennant is the, the minister, the pastor that trained the pastors who, who taught all of the, keep, keeping in mind, you know, the, the British after the Revolutionary War, they said we would have won the Revolutionary War if it had not been for the black-robed regiment, okay? And people wondered what they meant by that. The black-robed regiment they were talking about was the ministers in their black robes in the pulpits, preaching freedom, God-given rights, freedom to the people of America that caused them to rise up and deliver themselves from the tyranny of England. William Tennant shook the Christian community worldwide in many ways. Uh, uh, number one, he started training ministers here on American soil, and uh, the universities of Europe mocked him because to be a pastor, you had to be licensed. To be licensed, you had to go to college in Europe. 
So the only ministers that were here, uh, you know, the few of them that were here, had to be brave enough and had to be self-sacrificing enough to leave established communities and cities and country in order to come to the wilds of the new America and minister to here. Tenant understood that if we don't teach the people, then this place is going to turn into you know, debauchery and paganism. We need to train up men. And so he started looking for men who had a heart to learn the word of God, and he started educating them. Uh, Europe lost its mind because he was licensing under his authority, given to him by Europe, he was licensing ministers here. And they somehow tried to find that as illegal and bring proceedings against him. Eventually, uh, they gave up and uh, you know just tried to make as much of a mockery of him as they could. They referred to his uh, training locations as log colleges because they were in log cabins. So, and they said that very mockingly. Theirs were stone monuments, you know, Oxford and otherwise in Europe. And, you know, they, they were trying to put him down. Uh, so training men here in America without sending them back to Europe. And on top of it, he started, this really blew their mind. And this one statement was, you know, the biggest insult to them and worse than anything. He said that unsaved ministers produce unsaved Christians. And they were beside themselves over that statement because, you know, in their mind, how could a pastor be unsaved? That's not possible. And and how how could a minister, you know, produce Christians? And then he, he went on at great length to explain, look, you know, these people aren't of another religion. They are of the Christian religion, but they're not born again. And, and so he started using this phrase, you know, a born-again Christian, evangelical Christian. Those weren't common phrases at all. They were, they were not used phrases at all in his day. He began referring to the new birth. And that, that in, in early America, that became the coin phrase for a born-again Christian was those that were of the new birth. Okay, here Peter is saying, right, you know, since all of this has occurred, then you need to, from a purified soul, you know, obeying the truth of the Spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently of a pure heart, having been born again. The question stands, have we been born again? And I'm not talking about uh, were you in a Sunday school class and somebody said, Will you pray a prayer with me? And you raise your hand and you went through some ritual and signed a card and you got your little card. I'm talking about is your nature different? Which is what Peter is saying. You were born with a sinful nature. And you've had an encounter with God. You want to say, you know, through religion, through church, through organized religion, fine. But has your character been changed? Do, do, do you see in your life you've been changed by Jesus Christ, right? That you're not what you used to be, that you have a new character. When I do uh, jail ministry, 
I know I commonly drive this point home with a lot of guys because a lot of guys in jail that I mean they're coming to a Bible study. Okay, generally speaking, the only guys that are going to come to a Bible study are the ones who have some background with Christianity, and very often they show up and in their mind they're born again. And to which I say, then why are you in jail? I mean, if your nature has been changed by Jesus Christ, why are you in an orange jumpsuit? What happened? Are you in jail for the cause of Jesus Christ? And you find out, no, it's some horrible thing. Well, wait a minute. This is not the nature of Jesus. This is not the nature of your heavenly Father. If the Holy Spirit has planted his seed in you and given birth to the Holy Spirit inside you and you have been born again, then how is it that you are dominated by your sinful nature? Right? You're going to have the sinful nature the rest of your life. Don't mean to disappoint anybody, right? But you have a new nature that has been born. And with every passing day, especially when you feed it the word of God at the start of every day, that new nature grows stronger and stronger. And as it grows stronger and stronger, it has a resistance and a death to the old nature. It's killing and diminishing the old sinful nature. The illustration I use is, you know, say all you want to, right? Sin being like a magnet. If you put the magnet on the table and you pour the BBs out on the table, their, their nature being metallic is going to draw them right to the magnet. The sin, the opportunity, you know, the desire combined with the opportunity, boom. You're going to automatically, your nature needs to change. You know, if we take uh, plastic pellets of identical size and shape of the metal BBs and you pour them out on the table, unaffected by the presence of the magnet, not going to be drawn to the magnet. Our nature, in similar way, needs to change so that we're not automatically drawn towards. And, and we have, if nothing else, you know, if you feel that urge, then, you know, the change nature gives you strength for resistance, to pull away and to fight against what would so naturally cause you to behave in a specific way. Since you've been changed. I mean, this is a thing that needs to be sounded loud and long in the church in the church today. That there must be a change in the nature. That you live a new life. That that born again, that the new birth is in fact the prominent portion of your existence. It's not even just a part, right? We, we have, you know, maybe we've experienced that or maybe we've been around others that sort of compartmentalize. You know, when I'm with this group, I behave like a total heathen. But when I'm with this group, oh, I raise my hands and I sing the songs and I maybe even cry a little bit. You know what I'm saying? And, and where whatever environment I'm in, you know, like a chameleon, I, I I take on you know these these different natures of each of those groups that I'm with. Uh, you know Jesus uh, labeled that as being a hypocrite, and and 
the hypocrites of his day, that Greek terminology uh, meant to be a mask wearer. You know, they, they were the actors in the theater. Uh, we see those two masks dep- depicting cinema and theater today. You know, uh, the, the, the laughter and the sorrow or the, or the pain and the joy, however you want to describe that. And, and the, the actors of the day wore masks. And, and Jesus said of the hypocrites when he came that the sword that proceeded from his mouth, he would cut them in two and, and assign them their part in hell amongst those where there would be wailing and gnashing of teeth. You know, there can't be a compartmentalization of our lives. Oh, when I'm with this group, I behave this way. When I'm at the Christian group, I behave that way. When I just, the consistency needs to be present. You have to function in a purity of your soul, obeying the truth through the Spirit and sincere love. Again, that term sincere, you know, many of us know it means without wax. Because uh, in the day, the potters, um, their methods were a lot different than they are today. Nowhere near as refined as some of what goes on today. But in firing uh, clay pottery, very often it would crack. And if you've put a lot of effort and material into that, I mean, it's useless once you've fired it. You can't, I mean, if you're working with a mold and you're spinning and, you know, somewhere along the way it, it gets all out of whack and you have to crush it all down and start again. That's one thing. Once you've fired it, uh, you, that material is useless. You can't start at the beginning and throw it away. It's garbage. So they developed a practice of grinding the uh, pottery down into a dust and they would mix it with wax and then they would pack it into the cracks so so that they could sell you a vase and then it looks beautiful and you go this is wonderful and you buy it and you go home and then you pour hot liquid in it and the mac you know the wax melts out and the liquid runs out it's it's, it's destroyed uh, the term sincere means without wax Right, uh, Our faith, our being born again of the Spirit needs to be without wax. That, that under pressure, under fire, we perform the same as we do when we're calm, cool, and collected. <laughs> when, there, when there is no temptation, when there is no difficulty. Uh, sincere, truthful. You know, we, we understand what, you know, being sincere means, but somebody can fake being sincere, right? We think of it as like, you know, deeply emotional. Oh, they were so sincere. You can fake that. Sincere truly means without wax, no fakeness about it. You know, the genuine is what you're looking for. So this sincere faith, you know, your sincere love of the brethren, love for one another fervently with a pure heart having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible. Corruptible seed, incorruptible seed. See, this this is, here we are, Christmas time, holiday season, and we're, we're talking about Jesus' birth, the virgin birth, okay? Uh, you know, as much as we like to sort of shift the things around and say, well, really, Eve, you know, she ate of the fruit, well, the scripture puts the whole problem squarely on Adam's shoulders. Okay? Head of household, head of the relationship. Uh, you know, he should have said, Look, Eve, I love you more than you can possibly imagine. 
but you've stumbled into an area that's going to destroy us all. So I'm not eating of the fruit, and we're going to go to God together, and he's going to sort your problem out. Instead, yeah, I'll join you in that. You know, my, my desire for the created being being greater than my desire for God can create massive problems. You know, when Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you've got to hate your wife. Like, wow, what? what? You've got to hate your children. What, I mean, what in the world could he mean by that? It's, it's hyperbole, but, but it's making the point of when someone watches your behavior and they recognize your love and your commitment to Jesus Christ, that must so supersede your relationship with your wife, with your children, that your love for your wife and children look like hatred in comparison to your love for Christ. Your love for Christ has to exceed all things. All things. You know, this, this relationship with Adam and, and his choosing to fall, choosing, right? The scripture clarifies Eve was deceived. Adam chose. There's a difference there. You can't really blame the person that has been deceived. The person who recognizes and chooses anyway. Oh, that's a major problem. Okay? Adam chose. He wasn't deceived, apparently. He chose. That poisons the entire human race. Sin and death enter into the human race through Adam, not through Eve, through Adam's choice. So the entirety of the human race is poisoned. The seed is poisoned with sin. The seed comes from man. This is why God chooses a virgin and causes her to be pregnant. Because man's corrupted seed will not be involved with it at all. So that what is born of the virgin is not pure because of Eve's purity. It's pure because of God's purity. So our purity must be of Christ. It can't be of religion. It can't be of church. It can't be of denomination. We must be born again. The Spirit must cause life of Christ to be birthed in us. And yes, there's a growing maturation process that occurs. We often say sanctification. You know, the, the purity and the life and the maturity that comes in that. But it must start with the seed which comes from the Holy Spirit implanted within us. So this, this reaction, this behavior... Listen, I, I, I hate to describe this. I'm very often to give recommendations to people that are going into ministry, going into Bible college, and they, you know, they approach me as the pastor and say, would you give this person a recommendation? And very often there's a question there that says, what evidence do you see in this person's life that they are in fact born again? And I hesitate to sort of let the secret out here, right? But what I'm looking for is, do they have 
a desire for fellowship with the body of Christ? Do they have a desire all on their own for the word of God? Do they have a desire all on their own for prayer, right? for singing? Does that come from inside them naturally all on its own, right? Because, you, I mean, you look at anybody's life, you're going to be able to nitpick and find flaws, right? Would you recommend this person on a human scale? No, no. <laughs> I've seen their flaws, you know, right? Anybody examines me, you're going to find the flaws. But is there a God-given desire to read the Word, study the Word, know the Word, be in prayer, sing songs, be in fellowship. I tell you right now, if I could live here 24 hours a day with all of the people, the saints, the body of Christ, I'd just stay right here. Study the word, share meals. If we didn't have to worry about bills, didn't have to worry about right, all that other stuff in life, just, you know, just to be in fellowship with the body of Christ, I'd, I'd be enthralled with that concept. I'm longing for the kingdom. I'm looking for the fulfillment of God's plan. Why? Because he planted that in me. Right? That's what you're looking for. So many people live completely fake, completely, for whatever reason. There's all kinds of different motivations, but they come into the body of Christ and they're putting on a show. They're going to have to figure out what that's about between them and the Lord. Peter is saying right here, that can't be who you are. It has to be sincerity, has to be true, has to be from the birth that comes from the Holy Spirit, having created this in you. He can't just go through and write a list. Okay, so now you're Christians, you've signed up, you've joined the club, right? You got your badge, you know, you're working on a few more. So uh, now let's just give you all the list of the rules. Always do this in all of these cases. Never do this in all of these cases. And if you do, then you're a good, you know, upright you know, Christian. That's that's not what it's about at all. Christ changing our nature. Christ bringing about these effects. So uh, this incorruptible seed through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Okay, word of God. John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Right? Verse 15, and the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Jesus is the Word. Uh, move forward. Right? And the Word of God, uh, which is, you know, the, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the Word of God. Right? You are already pure because I have given you the Word. I have taught you the Word. I have washed you in the Word. The word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Alive. Alive, right? You know, uh, <clears throat> you ever been to a wax museum? Anybody? Kind of creepy how real they are. You know, how lifelike they are. Uh, but they're not alive. They have no thought. They have. I mean, it might even, like, shock you, you know, around the corner. And there's, I don't know, Frankenstein, you know, wax museum you know, and you go wow that's that's kind of scary in its life likeness but it's not alive it poses no threat to you it has no authority over you it cannot affect you right in any way get positively or negative ah but the word of god is alive it's alive 
It has its own thought. It has its own function. It has its own influence. You know, I arrived today at CRD, Calvary Residential Discipleship Program in Orrington, Maine. I teach up there every Wednesday. And I'm teaching them a particular passage from Matthew chapter 25 where the Lord judges the nations of the world and he divides the sheep and the goats. And I just reach over into Revelation chapter 20 where the great white throne judgment occurs there. And I'm making contrasts between these two. And I see this sort of like rustle go through the, I don't know, 50, 40 people in the room. And I finally am like, so like, like, what is the reaction? And they're like, uh, we're in the one year Bible, uh, at the, the whole of the, the or, um, program is. And they were like, uh, that is our reading for today. Revelation chapter 20. So they've spent the morning digging through that and digesting that. So all the point that I want to make of support and contrast, the Holy Spirit's already prepped them for it. Okay? So we go through that. So then the next big strong point that I want to summarize everything with and close up for the day is Psalm chapter 1, which says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of the sinner, sits in the seat of the scornful. His delight shall be in the law of the Lord, and in his law he shall meditate day and night. But the point is, that's their memory verse this week. Okay? And I'm saying to them, look, I had no idea that this is where you're at. The word has its own desire. And the word is trying to accomplish something in their hearts and minds to help them understand, in particular, Matthew chapter 25 is broken into three sections, and all three of them are telling us to constantly be ready for the return of Jesus Christ. So that that attitude of readiness is there, right? And I'm saying to them, do you understand what the Holy Spirit is trying to communicate here to not just them, to us all as we look at the word together? It's alive, right? As much as I'm alive and I have a certain message and a thought and a direction coming into here that I want to communicate with you from this passage, the Holy Spirit and the word of God do also. And, and realistically, uh, much more so, you know, I'm praying constantly the goal of my life is to be an empty vessel. That what the Word wants to do, it's doing through me. That, that I'm just here, you know, I, I don't know, maybe that sounds like I'm trying to be overly humble. But I'm, you know, forgive me if I come across that way. I'm just trying to get out of the way and relay whatever it is that the Lord wants to relay. Very important we understand how alive, how powerful the Word of God is and what it produces in our lives. With that, take a much stronger approach, if you haven't already, to being in the Word, paying attention to the Word, learning the Word, sharing the Word, letting it have its way, its will, and its effect. Make sense to us all? Yeah? Okay, so here, um, you know, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever, because all flesh is grass 
and all the glory of men as the flowers or the flower singular of the grass. The grass withers, its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. We think uh, of um, uh, things of this world and, and uh, um, you know, I'm kind of struggling to really put that into to words, but we think of man as so permanent. You know, have you ever uh, gone back to someplace I had an occasion years ago? Um, I uh, try not to hold this against me, but I was born in Vermont and raised there for the first nine years of my life. And now you're going, oh, makes a lot of sense. So um, um, both of my parents were from Aroostook County. Does that help at all? Anyway, um, so, uh, East and Maine. So um, uh, I've, I've been back a couple of times, a uh, few times, but, you know, went with my wife a few years ago and went back to the house that I lived in and the location and, like, so small. You know, it was a massive, cavernous, castle-like cathedral when I was a child. It's a little tiny ranch. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Just three little bedrooms. Tiny little place. What we think of as so permanent. So, you know, twin towers are gone, right? It's a hard concept to embrace, you know, when you grew up with them in place. The thought that they would be gone. I mean, we've gotten used to the concept that they're gone. Remember right after they were gone and the impact that had? You know, I, I uh, see that they found this time capsule under, uh, was it Robert E. Lee's statue they just removed down in Virginia? Uh, one of the Confederate generals. They just removed his statue and they, they found this time capsule. Uh, it had newspapers and you know, uh, ammunition and a bunch of stuff inside it, and they're all enthralled and fascinated with that. And it is uh, when they zoom back from the thing, I realize, oh, <laughs> I was there a few years ago with the students from the school. And I remember thinking, like, how huge it was and, you know, what an amazing thing. And, uh, you know, it's gone now. It's been removed. That which we think of as so permanent, so established, Never going to fall. Never never going to be done away with. Temporary. All of it. All of it. Yeah, 100%. America included. Right? Our Lord and King is coming here. And all the nations are going to be gathered to him. And they're going to have to prove their submission to him. In, in order to be ruled over by him for a thousand years. He, he is uh, essentially going to nullify. All nations in the process. There will be one kingdom, one king, one throne, all under Jesus Christ. He alone is the eternal one. The word alone is the, the thing that is eternal. Nothing, nothing else is all going to be done away. It's a remarkable thing to consider. You know, all flesh, every living thing, all that we have done, all we created, temporary. Very, very temporary. Fades off quickly, you know. What does he say? You know, one day is, next day it's thrown into the oven. <laughs> you know, it's kindling. Fire starter, newspaper. Just let it dry up, chuck it in there, light it on fire, and cook your meal over it. 
That which we think of as so permanent, described as grass. Oh, uh, the word alone is permanent. And how we should absorb it, retain it, keep to it, and let it influence us and affect us. Now, this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. Therefore, chapter 2, verse 1, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. Oh, honestly, you guys, if we were to do that, a lot of churches would be very, very different. Very, very different. So so interesting how much what is spoken of there. You know, very easy to see it in the world. Take any given group, organization, event. You know, you can find this as like core foundational principles of all of them. Malice, you know, the, the inward thought of evil and planning. You know, malice, a forethought is, uh, you know, part of our legal system. You, know, you, you had wickedness in place in your mind malice all deceit no no, no deception whatsoever uh, you know philip no guile right you know nothing in us that is tainted in any way you say yes, i'm i have no guile. Uh, really uh, so when you tell the stories do you paint yourself in the best light because most of us do you know regardless of what it is we put the angle on us perfect i worked in television uh, news production for years, uh, worked for ESPN a couple times, and just, wow, television personalities. That's some interesting stuff right there. Uh, just, you know, the right side, the right angle, the right light, you know, they, they, they are fine-tuned on making themselves look at deceit. <laughs> deceit. That's incredible. You know, it's, it's interesting to me, uh, just talking uh, with a brother the other day about uh, how we communicate with people. And uh, I worked in radio for many, many years. And um, uh, people, uh, we, we, we train people this way. We teach them that they can, they can hear on radio the expression on your face. Right? And we don't think that way. But, you know, <clears throat> if I'm selling something and I come on the radio and I say, we have the best product in the world that you can imagine, and it's uh, located over here at this address. So why don't you come over, and uh, we'll do our best uh, to make sure that you get everything you want. But if I say that I have the best product in the world, and it's located right over there, and if you'll just come by, uh, we'll do our best to make sure you get it and uh, that you're satisfied with it. The expression, right, is... see. Radio and television, most of the people, when you hear them, that's not even their normal speaking voice. It's deception. It, it is not even uh, how much of that goes on inside our world. Okay, now here's the thing. There's a bunch of Debbie Downers that are like, yeah, so that's why I'm always negative, because that's just, I don't want to be deceitful. <laughs> So I just communicate that way. You don't like it, then things to be you. You know what I'm saying? I just, you know, no, no, no. Here's the issue. Let your heart be changed so that there is no deceit, so that you can say with a smile on your face, so that you can greet, so you can be uplifting, so that you can be kind, right? 
Yeah, sure, right, I get it. You don't want to be deceitful. But, but let your heart be filled with Christ so that you don't have to be playing a part. So you don't have to uh, be coming across as fake. Be the real thing. You know, let, let your person be changed so that you can actually be, you know, good and kind and loving. You know, let all the malice, all the deceit, the hypocrisy, the mask wearing, envy, envy. Boy, materialism creates a lot of that. Just, and, and the church, we want to be careful. We want to be careful about how much we let envy influence us or how we might portray it out to other people. You know, consider uh, how that might work in your life. Now, you know, there are some things, right? Paul Paul did tell us it was okay uh, to covet. He did. People's prayers. Okay? You know, the proper application with certain things, right? You know, they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, Right? And you'd think Jesus like bust him over the head with a spiritual hammer. Instead, right, he says, if you want to be the greatest in the kingdom, you're going to have to become everyone's servant. Right? So he doesn't say the desire to be the greatest is wicked and you should never think that way. He says, if you want to be greatest, then you're going to have to become the servant. Right? So there are ways within this where our hearts just need to be purified, and then in the process, the conduct is corrected. So getting rid of these things, the hypocrisy, the envy, uh, the envy, all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word. How does a, how does a newborn babe desire milk? Oh, they scream for it, don't they? Yeah? No? Anybody that's been a parent knows, right? When they're newborns, if you sleep through the night, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. Because that child is going to wake up and demand, demand what it needs. As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word. It needs to be that if something's not right, I'm uncomfortable. I am just, I'm getting grouchy. <laughs> I'm just getting wound up. You know, we, we use that term now, right? Like hangry, right? You know, you're getting hungry and angry as a result. It needs to be that as believers, that there is a natural desire within us for the word that compels us towards it. That, that to me is, is the biggest sign if somebody's claiming to be a Christian, but they have they do not have this attached relationship with the word and incessant need and desire for the word, oh I right away I, I like back up. Like so like th this is probably gonna be dangerous because it should be present. Something's wrong. My first assumption is, whoa, is hypocrisy immediately behind this? Is everything I'm seeing fake? This is a professing Christian that has no desire for the word. Something's desperately wrong. Yeah. Right? Anorexia. A person who's already sickly and emaciated, who has had something affect their mind to convince them that they need to eat less. Spiritual anorexia happens to people. 
where they're not consuming and they think they're fine and they actually have a compulsion to consume less. Spiritual bulimia is real also. You know, binge and then purge. You know, take it in, take go to every church service, read every book, but then you when you talk to them, they reject everything that's going in. They don't they don't believe it, they don't embrace it, they don't live by it. They're puking it out. I've listened to people at churches just sat in a brilliant sermon, and they're walking out the door going, I don't know if I agree with all of that. That's not right, you know. They're, they're rege- Before they get out the door, they're already hurling up what they took in. They're already rejecting it out of their person. As a newborn babe, if a child, if an infant will not take the milk in, oh my gosh, the concern of the parents. Right? There's something wrong. This child is sick. If it will not just naturally demand and crave and desire and eat and consume the Word of God, we must take it in. If right now, if some of this is convicting to you, take it to heart. Make the corrections. You know, right? Have you been sick before uh, to where you didn't eat for so long and you just like, you, you know, other people were concerned about you need to eat and you're like, I couldn't possibly. I've just been so sick. There's no way. And the thought of eating, you know, let me just make you some toast. No, please, you know, some broth. I can't. And then you finally, you know, get to the place. Let me coax this into you. Take some broth. Just dip the bread in the sauce and just eat. And bang, the hunger kicks on for the first time in however long. And, And you do, you eat that right down and you're like content for a few minutes. You're like, oh, no, hunger has kicked in. That's good. I'm glad. Thank you for doing that. That's cool. And then within a few minutes, you're like, you know what? I could use some eggs too. <laughs> and could I have toast again? Could we like, let's begin eating, right? Sure. Spiritually, things sometimes do sicken us. Sin, make us feverish to where we leave off and we're not consuming. we got to reignite the appetite. You've got to take the simple things. What are the sweet passages that you digest easily? Right? Can you just open up Psalm and just read? You know, are Proverbs simple to take in? Reignite it. Reignite the hot hunger. Open the book. Get it going. Let it produce a hunger. Let it produce a desire. And obey the hunger and the desire. Right? Let the health be restored. Let the strength come back. Get the Word of God flowing into your heart, into your mind again, into your person, into your body. And as a result, then activity, right? Think about that, right? When you're sick, you're so weak. And you're like, I'm doing pretty good. And you get up off the couch to walk to the bathroom and you just flop back down to the couch like, wow, that took everything I had. <laughs> right? But when you start eating again, well, then you can do a little more. And then you can eat some more, and then you can do some more. The strength starts to return with the diet, with the intake. And, of course, Paul is, you know, admonishing us that, you know, we should have moved past the milk, and we should have gotten to the meatier things, right? But in the purity of 
the young Christian, the place to begin is in that pure milk of God's word. That we would desire it and that it would create the hunger, whet the appetite, and make us desirous of more. And the strength then increases the appetite, right? Any of us that have worked hard, laborious jobs know. Right? Sometimes you get done the day and you can literally eat a horse. You know, just why? Because of the energy expended. Because of what is done there. You know, you you know, you sit down and you're like, you know, I can read a whole book. I can read both of Peter's books uh, together and get what I need out of them. Whereas somebody else is like, dude, I I I could barely finish one chapter of Proverbs. That's okay. Finish the chapter of Proverbs. Take in the milk. Let the appetite grow. You know, as a you know child of God, the pure milk of the Word that you may grow thereby. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Oh, good grief! Right? I mean, that's certain certain menus. Right? Certain menus have certain themes. Right? You know, you go to certain menus. Cheese is a big part of certain menus, right? You get other other menus. Oh, Ken took us to this place. I think it was in New Jersey called the Library. Wow, man. I mean, <clears throat> steak is the theme, okay? You know, they're like, uh, they, he tells me they got a really incredible ribeye here. And I'm like, oh, oh, great. They've got a really incredible everything there. But here's the deal. When I describe this to you, you're going to go look for this place. You're gonna, I mean, you're going to go on a road trip. I mean, you walk up to the entrance of the kitchen. I'm, I'm oblivious. I have no idea what we're doing. Right? And uh, he, I, I say, ribeye. Guy's like, sure. Pulls off this. Ribeye. Bang. Right on the counter. And he sets his knife down on it. And he just looks at me blank. And I'm like, and? And he's like, is that thick enough? I'm like, a little thicker. He moves his knife over a quarter inch. He's like, I'll move this knife as far as you want me to. I'm like, how about like that? He's like, okay. And ribeye, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. And it was so, I cut it with my fork. Like, just put the steak knife down. And, you know, eat this thing. incredible, incredible. There, there is, there is, you guys, uh, certain themes to certain menus. Grace, grace, is the theme of this menu. From Genesis to Revelation, grace. Oh, how savory is grace! Right, anybody can eat it. Anyway, right? if, if, if it was the law, <laughs> if the menu was the law, oh, darn, you know, I just, I'll try to eat it, you know. I'll do everything I can to rules, regulation, you know. You understand what I'm saying? If you've tasted of this and you understand grace, love, this is the palate, this is the menu, this is the diet that the Lord wants you to consume and live by and exude from yourself. It needs to be the savor, needs to be the known, needs to be our consumption. Make sure that that's where you're at. 
right? Because sometimes certain people do the preparation with this menu and they deliver it up in such a way that the grace isn't there at all. And, and the Word of God doesn't taste right when the grace is not there. Right? You, you've had certain recipes that you grew up on and you love so much and somebody said, hey, I'm making you that dish. And you sit down and eat and you go, something's missing. <laughs> it's, not, it is, it's just not right. You know, My wife, she's so precious, man. <clears throat> Many years ago, we had friends over. And uh, she said, hey, why don't you invite those people over, whole family. And I'm like, God, that's great. And she said, I'll make us all lasagna. And I'm thinking, oh, that's fantastic. Her lasagna, wonderful, amazing. I invite them over, and I tell them when I invite them, and Lori's going to make her lasagna. It's going to be so amazing. I talk to them throughout the week. It's going to be wonderful. You're not going to believe it. She's got lasagna, just garlic bread. It's amazing. Why would you just change everything and cook vegetarian lasagna? It's like a living nightmare. I don't even know. I'm pretty sure that under the rules of etiquette, you're not even allowed under any circumstances to make vegetarian lasagna. I don't think I don't think those two things go together. It's not vegetarian lasagna. It was a good vegetarian lasagna. But I mean, all week long, I've been saying like sausage and beef, and I've been building this up like you're not going to believe it. <clears throat> Carrots and broccoli and cauliflower. Not lasagna. The only time in my life that I have said to my wife in front of guests, please don't ever make this again. <laughs> only time in my life I've ever done that because I've been telling them for a week this amazing thick, all this cheese, sauce, beef, you know, sauce. It's going to be amazing. I've been telling them. And they get there, and it's vegetarian. Grace. Grace has to be in this message. It has to be what you're driving. It's a key ingredient to our relationship with it. In fact, am I incorrect? Correct me if I'm wrong. It's the key ingredient to the Word of God. Our relationship with the Lord. His sacrifice was grace. Grace. That he sacrificed himself. God became a man and allowed himself to be crucified so that you did not have to experience eternal death. That's grace. That's grace. What a wonderful message Peter understands, right? The man really understands grace, doesn't he? All right. Right, and when he's telling you, hey, if you're going to preach the same message I'm preaching, you make sure grace is included. You make sure it's the prominent ingredient method message in what you're delivering to people. So uh, we'll have to leave off at uh, verse 4, and we'll pick up when we're together uh, next week.